This has been an horrendous day, that's all I can say. We started out from Lake Isabella. I was driving my CRV, and we pull out about 45 minutes, and all of a sudden I start having transmission problems. A CRV, a Honda, having transmission problems. So I felt my belt was loose on my, CR, on my CVT transmission, so I turned around and hobbled back to my house, and when we got to hills, we went about 10 miles an hour, and we went, came down the hill, we got up to about 60 miles an hour, and we came to another hill, we both were praying, get us home. And we got home and changed cars. I knew my wife wouldn't like to be on the back of my Ninja coming down here, so it's good we had a second car. That's all I have to say. Um, yeah, I do love the Word of God, and I was saved by reading The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And I was reading it in the early 70s, and I came to know Christ as my Savior sitting in a gas station about a year and a half after I read the book and telling everybody about it, all my friends. We were going out drinking, going to nightclubs, and we're sitting there, and a friend of mine and I were looking at each other, and I said, you know, I've come to know Christ. And he says, I've come to know Christ. We both left our beers and left. That was the end of our partying. That was the end of my early experience as a, a believer in Christ that didn't know anything. And uh, I'm thankful for all these years. I'm thankful for my son, Pastor Elisha, giving me this opportunity. I, I never had an idea I would do anything like this. He asked me a question one time, what do you think about Moses being one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11? And I said, let me explain to you why I believe that. And I went through all these verses, he said, Dad, would you come and do a prophecy conference? I about fainted on the floor thinking my son's going to have me do a prophecy conference. And I said, Elisha, I believe in you. And he says to me, Dad, I believe in you too. So we're going to look at prophecy, and I hope my mic stays in position. A lot of verses I have written out for you. And so if I get to the point where I'm having a little bit of struggle knowing that you have those verses. I gave out these handouts for no other reason, and I'm not going to comment on all of them, but they are beneficial for you. In a question and answer time, you have any questions, you look at some of these charts, I'm only going to use a few of them this weekend, but if you have any questions on them, I'll explain it to you. So be ready for question and answers tonight. So first of all, I want to say there are three views on the rapture, okay? There's the pre-trib view, which I'm going to present tonight. There's the mid-trib view after three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then there's the view that says we're going through the entire tribulation period of seven years. And then we'll go up. And when we go up, we'll be coming right back down with the Lord. So why would I be pre-trib? Well, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of pictures. Is this staying on? I'm good. Uh, there are a lot of pictures, but remember something. In the New Testament, the rapture is a mystery. Paul calls it a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, meaning that it's something that's never been revealed, but it's being revealed now. So if you had the Old Testament, some of the pictures, you would not know that there's anything going to be referred to as the rapture in the Bible apart from the New Testament. But there are reasons to believe that the rapture is somewhat taught in the Old Testament only in pictures, only in pictures. Look at Enoch. Enoch was 600 years before the flood. Noah's going through the flood with his family, eight people, and Enoch's taken 600 years before the flood. 
And it says Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. He never died. That's a picture of believers who will never die. Now whether he is a picture of the rapture in the Old Testament, I'm not saying that, but he was raptured. He was seized. He was taken away by the Lord. Then you come to Lot. Lot's in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We all know the story. Aha. I don't think my son thought I was going to move around this much. You got me? That's all right. Well, put more tape on. I don't care. I think the, I think the problem is your beard, Dad. Aha! Okay, we should be. Let's try it. Okay. Let's try it. Let's try it. We're going to try and make it. Now, when he was in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's called a righteous man. We all know that. New Testament makes it clear. And the angels told him this. When they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life, talking to Lot, his wife, and two daughters. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. Then it says, hurry, escape there, for I can do anything or can't do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was Zor. He was supposed to escape to the mountains. He compromised got the angels to make an agreement that he could go to one of the cities of the plain and went to Zoar. Then he got panicky and went into the mountains. But you know what? I can't do anything because you are here and you are righteous. I cannot judge Sodom and Gomorrah and allow righteous people to be here because Abraham had already bargained. God, if there are 50 people, God said, yeah, I'll spare it. 40 people, I'll spare it. 30 people, I'll spare it. 20 people, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah for 20 people. What about 10, Lord? Abraham's begging for his nephew. He says, for 10, I'll spare it. There weren't 10, there were only four. Even the sons-in-law laughed. And what does the New Testament say about Lot? That God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. In 2 Peter 2, 6 through 9, which you have in your notes, it says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, and we could say amen to what we're seeing today, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to what? Rescue the godly from temptation or judgment and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Beloved, that's pretty clear. God's not going to judge when the righteous are there. The righteous are not going to endure the wrath of God. That's why Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll never be condemned along with the wicked. We'll never be judged along with the wicked. And God proved it again in the Old Testament. Remember the Exodus? The ten plagues that were brought upon Pharaoh, Pharaoh's house and the land of Egypt? 
what happened. When you get to the fourth plague, God makes a difference between the Egyptian and his own people. Where does he place them? He places them in the land of Goshen because the Egyptians think it's an abomination to be a shepherd. And so they place all of the Jewish people in the land of Goshen. Are they going to be judged? No, God makes a distinction between them and Egypt. And all the plagues from there on in are against Egypt. But nothing happens in the land of Goshen. Because God will not judge his people along with the wicked. He won't do it. Now we come to the reality of the New Testament. And the New Testament is very, very clear. Main passages, and I, they're in your notes. If you've got your notes, use them. And don't do what a lot of people do. Take them home, put them in a prophecy file. Or put them someplace where you know they're at. And keep them. Don't throw them away. They're too invaluable. You can use them in the future to remind yourselves about prophecy. That's why Elisha, Pastor Elisha gave them to you. John 14, 1 through 3. A very subtle hint to his disciples about the rapture. It's just a, a subtle hint. It says this in John 14, and if you want to turn in Bibles and you don't have the notes in front of you, that's fine as well. Do not let your heart be troubled, he's telling his disciples, the night of his betrayal. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, what? On earth? No, I will receive you to myself. I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you just go, wow. That's a hint, a strong hint. I believe it's more than a hint, but it's certainly a hint of the rapture. Then you go to Acts chapter 8. Remember, Philip the evangelist, he's a deacon. He's on the road, and he meets up with a certain individual that's in the uh, court, a court of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He's the Ethiopian eunuch. And it says that after he baptized him, because the eunuch asked to be baptized in water, and he said, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may. He takes him down, and then the next thing you know, it says this. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched. There's harpazo. There's our word for rapture. People say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. They're absolutely correct. It's not in the English Bible. It's not in the Greek Bible. It's in the Latin Vulgate, and it's raptural. That's where we get our word for rapture. Harpazo is the Greek word for to seize or snatch. It's almost like stealing something. And that's why it's described in the Word of God as a thief in the night, by the way. He comes like a thief to steal. And, and it's secret. And nobody knows about it until after the fact. And we'll get into that much later. But it says, he snatched him away. The eunuch no longer saw him in verse 39, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus 20 miles away. Can you imagine being right here tonight and you're 20 miles away, I'd be in shock. And Philip is an evangelist. I, I, I wonder what he felt like when he found himself in a total different place 
And God was demonstrating the word harpazo, or the Latin word rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. This is one of the critical passages on the rapture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, because we will read Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. But I want to say the great event here is that we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That is not a blink. That is when the sun hits your eye and a, and, a, and a beam flashes from your eye. Can you imagine being here and standing in the presence of God in the twinkle of an eye? Beloved, this is, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. I'm not trying to be opinionated here. I'm trying to share with you simple truth that is very complex for the average English reader because the Word of God is like a puzzle on prophecy. God wants you to study to put all the pieces together. And you cannot do it unless you work hard at it. That's why I've read the Word of God over and over and over again for 50 years. Not because I wanted to be an authority on prophecy. I wanted to be authority on the Word of God. This is absolute truth. You see how our society is changing? Because they don't believe in absolute truth. And we do. And we better be true to the Lord. Because we're coming to a day of reckoning. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Now, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is written about the day of the Lord, and these believers are waiting for the return of the Lord, and they're confused about the rapture, they're confused about the day of the Lord, all these things. We'll talk about that later on, but they're really confused. And in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul says this, I just want you to know, to wait for a son from heaven who... He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who does what? Rescues us from the wrath to come. Wow. People say, well, you believe the, the rapture's an escape, and the American church doesn't deserve an escape. Nobody deserves an escape. The truth of the matter is, we're fortunate to live in this country, but it doesn't change God's plan just because we live here and we're kind of spoiled, right? He's going to rescue us, and there could be tribulation for believers in our nation before the tribulation ever begins. Just talk to those in the Soviet Union, now a confederation of states. Talk to those in China. Couldn't happen in China. It did. Chairman Mao. Could it happen in the United States of America when they violate our Constitution over and over again and lie to us continually? It could happen here. And I heard a report on the FBI the other day, and I haven't seen the report. I've just heard it from somebody who's not a conspiracist. But you know what they look for? They look for all these things to look at terrorists. And then they look at religious people. And they look at those people who believe the book of Revelation. Is that scary? It should be scary, but it calls for us to be strong in the Lord and be great witnesses for Christ to everybody. I don't care if they're transvestite, homosexual. I don't care if they're abusers of mankind. I don't care if they're violent murders. They need Christ. And that's what this church is all about. That's what our son-in-law's church is all about, living way. It is about getting out the word of God to sinners, which all of us are still. We're just saved by the grace of God. So I just want to stress this message. He is going to rescue us, but I don't know. Will I see it? I might. I tend to believe if my wife and I don't see it and some of the older saints here that are boomers don't see it, 
maybe some of you Gen Xers, maybe some of you millennials or whatever generation is a new one, Z or whatever it is, you will probably see it, okay? Now, I wrote down 1 Thessalonians 4, so I'm going to read it to you. And you've got it in your notes, unless I decided to not include it in the notes and read it to you, but I've got it in mine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. The Bible says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Really get in the word of God for yourself. Don't trust your pastors or Sunday school teachers. Get in the word of God for yourself. Be informed about those who are asleep, those who have died in Christ. You will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Like when he said, Lazarus, come forth, only he's not going to say that. He's not going to just ask one person to come forth. He's just going to give a shout of command. And every believer who's died in Christ from Pentecost to the time of the rapture will be raised. The voice of the archangel. The archangel Michael's always involved with Israel in the Old Testament, believers in the New Testament. I might get into a little bit of that in Bible prophecy in the book of Daniel. But it says... The trumpet of God will be blown. And Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, talks about all the different uses of the trumpet. So you've got to be careful because trumpets can be used for war. They can be used for gathering the camp together. Uh, they can be used on new moons and festive days. There's all kinds of reason for the two trumpets that are mentioned in Numbers chapter 10. So when you read about the trumpet of God, this is very specific. The shout might be Christ's shout, but the archangel's involved. He always seems to be preserving and protecting God's people. When he lifts his protection, look out. We might talk about that later on as well. It says, that's going to happen, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet uh, them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Very interesting. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, talks about the rapture. And then all of a sudden, and there are no chapter divisions in the New Testament, by the way, and everything's in capital letters in Greek manuscripts. There are no verses. These were added for a purpose to make it easier for us to memorize, to learn the Bible and re reference verses from the Bible and make concordances about the Bible. So these things are beneficial to us. The text is all there. It's authoritative. It's the very word of God. But sometimes divisions of paragraphs might not be correct because of human authors thinking this is a paragraph. I want to tell you the next thing that's talked about after this, he says comfort one another with these words. And then in chapter 5 he starts talking about the day of the Lord. The day of judgment. Right after the rapture, you go into the day of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord. There's got to be a reason for this. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says this. Well, excuse me. I, don't, I, I think I will go there. Okay, it's in your notes. I was going to make a comment, but I've already made it on the day of the Lord, and we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 later on anyway. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. I'm sure Elisha put it in your notes. 
we request you, brethren, that regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. So guess what? There's John 14 again, verses 1 through 3. He's going to receive us unto himself, and this is our gathering together unto him, right? The context is clear. That you, verse 2, do not be shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It hasn't come yet. Okay? The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. The subject is our gathering together under him, and the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. We believe it's going to come right after the rapture of the church. How do we know that? You move on. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And then it says this. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. The word apostasy, if you looked at it in English, if you looked at it and you took the Greek letters and put them into, into our vocabulary, the word would look like apostasia. It almost comes over in the Greek that way. The word is apostasia. And it means departure. Earliest translations of the Bible just put the word departure. That's what they did. Our gathering together unto him, the day of the Lord hasn't begun until our gathering together unto him, the departure comes first before the day of the Lord beginning. Now I once said to my son-in-law, I'm stretching this a little bit, and he said, yeah. Well, I should have never said that to my son-in-law. Because I don't think I was stretching it. J. Vernon McGee, how many of you know Dr. McGee? Familiar? If you're a boomer, you know him. If you're in a millennial, shame on you. That's all I got to say. You should know Dr. J. Vernon McGee. How many of you know John MacArthur? Pretty good. I could keep going, but I'm not going to. I just want to say this. Dr. McGee believed two things about this verse. He believed that there's going to be a great apostasy in the church. Is the church becoming woke? Is the church becoming politically correct? Somebody recently told me they went to a church, they were married in the church, and they asked the pastor about these subjects, about prophecy, and he says, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to rock the boat. There are a lot of people that are bending over backwards to be politically correct. Peer pressure is making them say and believe things that they've never believed before. There is a refining of the wheat and the tares. And we have to be aware of this. And we have to check ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. We're not just attending a church. We're not just being religious. We are really, truly born again in Christ. This is really a problem. So Dr. McGee believed that the church was going to depart. And when the church departed, true believers were going to depart. And when the true believers departed, then the day of the Lord was going to come. Now, this is a divided teaching within Christianity. And if this is the great apostasy, which so many Bible teachers talk about, that's true. There is going to be a great apostasy. The Lord told his disciples that it would almost be impossible except for the sake of God's elect. And so I look at this passage and I say, okay, first of all, you've got to have a departure. Different views on that. 
then the man of sin has to be revealed. And how he's revealed is interesting, which I'll talk about more when we get into the tribulation period. I don't want to get into that at this point. But it says, this man of lawlessness in verse 3, the son of destruction, because that's what he brings. He doesn't bring, he brings lies and promises he never keeps. It says very clearly that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And I'm going to explain something about that later on as well. But I can't talk about it right now. Displaying himself as being God. And God allows this. He is going to go into the Holy of Holies and present himself as being God. And it is going to be accepted, Revelation 13, for a time. But it won't last for long. It won't last for long. Because it's all mingled with the seed of men. And the seed of men, because of our sin natures, cannot make government work forever. Every great government has fallen. And the Bible's very clear on that in the book of Daniel. So it says there's something else involved. It's holding Satan back and holding his man, the Antichrist, who is called the beast, both in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 and in, in also in 1 John, referred to as the Antichrist. It says, and verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, restrains the Antichrist from being revealed so that in his time he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Personal pronouns. The restrainer is a person. He is taken out of the way. He's the thing that's holding the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, holding Satan back, holding Satan's man back, the Antichrist. Some people say, well, I think it's human government. Oh, really? Human government is a he? Oh, that's the police. <laughs> oh, boy. Look at what's happened to our police. All, not only in America, but all around the world. They're not respected. Romans 13 says they're ministers of God. They're deacons for God. They give us law and order, and they protect us from those who are evil. He restrains him. He'll do so until he's taken out of the way. You know what I believe? Lot was a restraining force. Lot had to be taken as a righteous man, so God could judge. Guess what? We have to be taken. Why? He, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. And when he is taken out of the way, this one, this lawlessness one, this Antichrist will be revealed. And you say, but how will people be saved in the tribulation? Oh, they'll be saved very much like they were in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to talk about that later on. Who's going to do the saving of all those people, especially during the first part of the tribulation. We will probably, obviously, get to that tonight. But I'm just saying, there's a restraining force, and it's not the police, it's not human government, it's not anything, it's not the military, it's nothing like that. They can't do it, and we know it. So who does it? The Holy Spirit indwelling believers. And when believers are taken then guess what? The restraining force is gone. Will people get saved? Yes, they will. But the Holy Spirit, we believe, will act very much like he did in the Old Testament and also demonstrate that tonight as well. There's a lot of stuff to learn. And I'll tell you, I'm trying to make it as simple as I can because, to be honest, the way I was going to introduce myself tonight is to tell you that when I've taught the rapture, it's on four cassettes about 20 years ago 
and each cassette is about 45 to 50 minutes. Hey, I'm dating myself, I know. Now we do have CDs. And Elisha thinks I'm so primitive that I don't wear this kind of mic, and I wear this mic every, every Sunday, and we do have PowerPoint. I'm just telling you, my son, respect your elders. I'm 71 going on 20. That's what I am. I'm a kid in my heart, and I'm sure that anybody here tonight that's, that's older understands where I'm coming from. You never really grow up. You grow up in wisdom and knowledge like the book of Proverbs talks about, but you, you're just a kid inside, and that's why God calls us his children. We are sons by adoption, but we're his children. And I'm thankful for that because I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And I'm so thankful to be speaking to a group tonight. I'm just so grateful that I've been a pastor of Kern Valley Bible Church for 28 years. And I could have ruined it all. Believe me, if you've been through struggles in your life, you want to talk to somebody who's gone through some, didn't grow up right away, was a late bloomer, you're looking at them. I, I talk to people all the time about forgive yourself. Go on. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from how you failed and God blesses. He really does. Well, we're going to get in the book of Revelation a little bit. And I'd like you to turn there. Uh, some of this will be in your notes. Some of it won't be. But I'm going to stress certain things. And I'm, I'm running on time. I, I can't help myself because I know the subject I'm covering, I'm covering it in a skeleton way. But I'm giving you the best I can give you. And I, these are arguments that are so true. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And take me a minute to get there. Revelation 3.10. This is the church at Philadelphia. This is the church of brotherly love. Philos and the word associated with brotherly and love in this case. Uh, agapao or agape. And so what he's saying here is to this church, you love the word of God. That's the Philadelphia church. That's what I hope we all are. I hope my church is that. I hope this church is that. I have no doubt about it, that the word of God is being taught properly in the churches that are represented here tonight. What is God going to do to this church? Verse 10 of chapter 3. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance to keep on keeping on, to endure whatever comes your way, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That is not an accurate translation. The word is not apo, it's ek. I will keep you out of it. You won't go through it like they did during the plagues in Egypt and, and were spared and no harm came to them, but you're going out of it. That's a promise to the church of Philadelphia. That's the sixth church. In every church, even the wickedest churches in the book of Revelation, all churches have overcomers. So to believe that somehow church history is pictured in these seven churches, which I gave a chart on, is ridiculous. Because you'd have the rapture happening to the church of Philadelphia, but the overcomers in Laodicea would be left behind. That would be a partial rapture. So it can't be church history. You know what it means? Seven churches are representative of all churches, and Christ is in the center, and they all have lampstands. 
And he's like the hub of the wheel to the church. And without him, there is no wheel. There are no lights. You take away the hub and you don't have a church. Very fascinating when you think about this. Because the church at Thyatira, the worst church there is, is going through the great tribulation. Verse 22 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery, that's spiritual adultery with her, into what? Great tribulation. The word that is used in the book of Matthew, unless they repent of their deeds. So in San Diego, probably there, these seven churches are represented by all kinds of different churches with different labels from different denominations. And it's kind of a picture of Christ's church represented here in San Diego. It, it, it's not church history. And that was a, a view that was pretty popular years ago. And by some, it's probably still popular. It just doesn't work to have the tribulation in what would be here, the fourth church, have the rapture in the sixth church, and the seventh church, overcomers are left behind. Ah. No, poor interpretation of the Word of God. That's my opinion. Poor interpretation of the Word of God. Do you know we're not seen with the Lord at all until we come back with him in Revelation 19. We're not seen in the book of Revelation. Let me tell you, the book of Revelation talks about what you see, chapter 1, Christ. The things which are the seven churches, 2 and 3. Then 4 and 5 have to do with who's worthy to open the book. We know there's only one worthy. He's from the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he starts breaking the seals and allowing everything that's going to happen to happen. And then the angels are the ones that carry out the judgment in the trumpets and the thunders, which we know nothing about, and the vials. I mean, it is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable and phenomenal. Supernatural. You think that's going to change the hearts of unsaved? At the end of the book of Revelation, some of you are going to say, fall on us to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They know they're lost and they will not repent. Beloved, some people are so hard, they will never admit they're sinners and need a Savior, and they'll just be so angry, they'll wage war against Christ. And we'll get into all that later on. But I, I just can't help myself. I am so passionate about the end times. Why did Paul teach the Thessalonians? He was only there for about three Sabbaths. Why did he stress this? Because it's our hope. I want to go to be with the Lord. If I die and go to be with him, fine. If I don't and the rapture comes, praise God. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And we don't talk about it that way. We talk about death as it's horrible. I have people that just can't get over the fact of their loved ones being gone. We don't grieve as others that have no hope. And I'm very compassionate with them. But I know if Elizabeth died, I'm going to see her. I'm going to be reunited. And it's only temporary. A day is as a thousand years as a thousand years as one day with the Lord. I mean, time to him is nothing. I could go home to be the Lord and Elizabeth would be waiting for years. And honestly, sometimes I don't think she'd be too anxious to see me again. But anyway, <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, she knows she's going to see me again. 
and I'm going to see her again. And the greatest thing I ever wanted for was all my kids to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as far as I'm concerned, that's been fulfilled. I believe that with all my heart. And I pray for our grandkids the same way. Now, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 19. Because I can really get us off subject. And it's my fault. Revelation 19. This is very important to understand this as we look at the rapture. Verses 7 through 9 of Revelation 19. And the only reason I'm doing this is because it doesn't have to be in your notes because we'll be in the book of Revelation a lot. And when I am in a book, we'll just turn. If you've got your pads, whatever you've got, a phone, or your Bibles. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. The marriage of the Lamb has come. So the marriage is going to take place. It's already taken place. His bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. That's a key phrase. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wow. Beloved, do you know the scripture teaches 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches it. 1 Corinthians 3 teaches it. That we're going to stand before the beam of seat of Christ. That is not the great white throne. That's a place of reward. You're still saved. But how do you want to be saved? You want to be saved with wood, hand, stubble, your works. That's what they amount to, wood, hand, stubble. And they're burned up, but you're saved as by fire. Or do you want them to be works like gold and silver and precious stones? Because you did it for the Lord. What do you want? This is very important to understand because we have to see the bride made herself ready, right? I believe the rapture's pre-trib. You know why? Because I think we're going to be in heaven standing before the beam of seat of Christ. And I believe he, we're going to be married. He's going to prove his bride. He's going to make her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing according to Ephesians 5. And then we're coming back and guess what we're going into? The marriage reception. The reception. G- John the Baptist said he was a friend of the bridegroom. He was going to be one of the friends. I believe Israel's a friend of the bridegroom. I believe Israel has a big part of this. Matthew 24 and 25, people use that for the church. The church is not in Matthew 24 and 25, and we'll discuss that either in question and answer time or more fully later on. It's just not there. Beloved, can you imagine we go to be with the Lord and we all stand individually before the Bema seat? Are you nervous? I, I'm nervous tonight, I'll tell you the truth. My wife said, don't say you're nervous. I said, I'm nervous. I'm nervous in front of you. How am I going to be in front of him? How am I going to be in front of him? I love him with all my heart. But have I failed him? Yes, I have. Have you? Yes, you have. But what are you going to do now? We forget what's left behind, according to Philippians chapter 3. Paul had all this going in his favor, and he just left it all behind. That was good. But some of us have some bad that we leave behind, and, and we press forward for that upward call. And I always wondered if that upward call is Christ calling us to himself because he's preparing a place for us. Philippians chapter 3. This is so important for you to know that one day, if the rapture comes pre-trib, you will stand before him 
And are you going to be ashamed at your life or are you going to just sit there and he's going to reward you and you're going to give your crowns back to Christ for what he's done in your life? I'm always challenging believers in our church, always. Now, I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I can actually grab the cup now, and I'm not shaking so much. I got to have water. I dry out. But I hope I'm not dry. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you the things that take place after these things. Now let me remind you about the outline. I didn't give you the last part of it. He sees Christ. That's what he sees. The things that are during his day are the seven churches of Revelation scattered throughout Asia Minor in a gentle ark. The seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. Then he's worthy to open the book. And then, after he finishes the seven churches, guess what? It says there's a door standing open in heaven, right? And the first voice which I heard, again in verse 1, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you the things that are going to take place after these things, the church. Wow. Beloved, that's pretty clear. But a lot of people just read by that. They don't think about it. We spend so much time in books about the Bible that we don't allow the greatest teacher to help us learn the Holy Spirit. We need the books. We need those valuable men who have written books. But we also got to remember, we don't want to slight the Spirit of God by meditating on Scripture and observing it and tearing it apart word by word, verse, phrase by phrase. We don't want to do that. I will show you the things that must take place after these things. The church, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting like jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like the emerald in appearance. And that's what we're going to see. I don't have time to explain all this. And you'll say, well, I still believe we're going through the tribulation. Oh, really? Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We all know, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, right after the rapture, verses 1 through 3, that the day of the Lord, they'll be saying peace and safety after the rapture. And sudden destruction will come upon them as travail upon a woman giving birth. Brethren, the word of God says, we're not in darkness that the day should overtake us like a thief. He's coming like a thief for us, but it's not, not going to overtake us. And I'll explain that in a, in a later session. Because <laughs> I know I'm limited in time. Verses 4 through 8 of chapter 7. Look at the 144,000. They are all from the tribes of Israel, except Dan is not mentioned because Dan was in such apostasy in the book of Judges. So the two half-sons of Joseph become two tribes that make up the 12. And you'll find that in verses 5 through, what is it, verse 8? Yeah, verse 8. But look at what it says in verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing with the four corners of the earth 
holding back the four winds of the earth. In other words, winds cause damage and destruction. So that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Nothing's going to be harmed. The earth and the sea and the trees are not going to be harmed. And they will be harmed in the trumpets and the vials right off the bat. So this is a different time than the great tribulation. This is a time of peace and safety. God's not allowing anything to go wrong before these servants are sealed. And it says, verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. In other words, the angels are getting ready for the trumpets and the vials. But they can't do it yet because God's got to seal his bondservants. Verse 3, do not harm the earth and the sea or any trees until I have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Hey, Satan's going to have a mark in your hand, on your forehead. Not for us, but for those in the tribulation period who do not receive Christ. They will worship and give allegiance to the Antichrist. We'll talk about all that later on. What happens in the first part of this chapter? These servants are sealed. And then all of a sudden, there's this great evangelistic campaign. And it says in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And it's a wonderment who these people are. You go down to verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, to John having this vision. These who are clothed in white robes, who, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of what? Great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We're not here. We're not evangelizing in the tribulation the Jewish people who should have reached us in the Old Testament. God is using them to do what they should have done. But they considered us dogs, unclean, uncircumcised. Very few Gentiles came to know the Lord in the Old Testament. So God is saying, you know what? Sovereignly, I am going to make you do what you should have done throughout your history. You were supposed to be a light. You were going to be a city on a hill. You failed. Now I'm going to sovereignly use you to reach the Gentiles during the tribulation period. It's not the church. They're not witnessing. I love the fact that we have a missionary son, David and Emily, with the Earls in Papua New Guinea, with the Mueller's. I am thrilled. But we're never going to reach the world. But 144,000 Apostle Paul's will. That's what God is going to do. His people failed him miserably. You could say, how could these be, these be God's chosen people? And I would ask you, how can I be God's chosen person? Do I deserve this? That's what grace is all about. It's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. Men in ministry don't deserve it. You guys who are serving the Lord and love him, we don't deserve it. But he did it anyway. He drew you, he dragged you, it says in John 6, to himself. No man seeks after God, none understands. We've all turned aside, it says in Romans chapter 3. And he just reached down, sovereignly saved us. He does the same thing with 144,000. We're not here. I believe we're standing before the throne of God, the Bema seat, and being examined. 
And then the bride is perfected and we come back with him to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They come out of great tribulation. How are they going to die? This is another mind blower. Revelation 20 says anybody who receives Christ and will not denounce him during the tribulation will be beheaded. You just, you just say to yourself, wow. I saw a movie once, The Distant Thunder. It came from a Mark IV production, The Thief in the Night, then The Distant Thunder. You know what they had? They had guillotines lined up. People lined up to get their heads cut off. And I'm thinking, what kind of intimidation is that to make people who are standing in line see somebody beheaded and renounce Christ because of it? Do you know ISIS did that? They'd line up people on the beaches or on sand out in the desert, and they'd have a sword in their hand, and they would execute them one after another. Do you think there was a temptation there to say, I'm converted to ISIS? You know what? We don't know everything about the future, but even the symbology in the book of Revelation has literal meaning to it, and we need to remember that as we study it. Now, I gave you a chart. By the way, I'm right on time. I can't believe it, but that's my nervous energy. This chart is invaluable, and a lot of people don't use it for pre-trib. They don't even pay any attention to the feast. When you look at the month of Nisan, what do you have? Well, every month is a new moon, and that's blowing of trumpets is associated with the new moon. But on the 14th is Passover, right? And the Lord is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5. He initiated that the night of his betrayal as well. Then you have unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about Christ being unleavened. And we should be unleavened like our Savior. In other words, we should overcome sin. And we won't overcome it perfectly until we die. He's the first fruits. The fourth one. He's the first fruits. Now, 50 days later, you have the Feast of Pentecost. That would probably be it corresponding to when they get to Sinai. And in that feast, you have two loaves filled with leaven that are brought together as one. And guess what? In Ephesians, it tells us that he wants Jew and Gentile together as one. Two loaves full of leaven brought together as one. In the sheep idea of John chapter 10, he talks about the Jewish people who are his flock, but he says, I have another flock that I'm going to join together with this flock. Wow. We're Pentecost. Pentecost has never ended, right? Pentecost has never ended. Our day should have been accepted by the Jews. Christ is our Passover because the Jews rejected him, Romans 9 through 11. But guess what? When you look at this, this is the calendar of redemption for the Jewish people. Trumpets are blown. Israel has the greatest regathering you'll ever see going into the millennium. What are they going to experience? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was applied to the priesthood, to the people of the nation of Israel, and to all the implements of the temple that has to be rebuilt. The whole nation was cleansed every year on this particular day called the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Israel has a future, beloved, on a prophetic calendar. 
They have a future. And then, not only that, but then you have tabernacles. You know what that means? And it's said all throughout the prophetic books. I, made, I took the prophetic books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I went through every, pro, every passage I use in Bible survey because I do two chapters a week on Wednesday nights going through the Old and New Testament. We've covered almost everything in the Bible except for the, the poetry books. We're headed there. But I've still got to do Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Well, when I did this, I decided I was going to take all the verses in my survey Bible that I highlighted in blue about prophecy, and I was going to chart them out. And Isaiah is all about the millennium. I mean, Isaiah talks more about the millennium than anybody does. Jeremiah talks more about the scattering of Israel and regathering them. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel was in captivity in Babylon. He just basically talks about things that are related to the end times that kind of go into the millennium and kind of the repentance of Israel. And I was amazed at how you'd have to take major passages and rip them out if you don't believe Israel has a future. Do you know that's called replacement theology? The reformers believed that the church took the place of Israel because they saw Israel destroyed. The reformers like Luther and Martin and Zwingli and Knox and all of them believed there was no future for Israel. So therefore, if Israel's desolated, and the promises must belong to the church. So let's take all the passages that relate to Israel and make them about the church. That is lousy interpretation of the word of God. We don't do that. If God called them his chosen people and he's got promises for them that I'll share later on, especially as we go through the tribulation and the millennium. Beloved, he's got promises for us too. Is he a liar? Does he take back his promises? Do you know that Romans chapter 11, around verse 28, 29, says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Your salvation is irrevocable. You've got a gift from God. You've got a calling of God. It's irrevocable. Nobody can undo it. That's what Romans 8 is all about. You think he's going to forsake his promises to Israel? Then God is a liar. And God is not a liar. He is faithful when we are not. And believe me, I, I, I'm not, not as faithful as I'd like to be. I just want to cross the finish line. If I stumble across it in the Christian life and the race, I thank God. I, I don't know about rewards. I just want to get to heaven. But boy, I'd love to see God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. All of us would like to hear that. And we need to hear it. But we need to hear it because we are his faithful servants. I'll tell you, beloved, this is the church right here. All the way to Pentecost, we're still in it. This is for Israel. This is a calendar of prophecy. And people don't even realize it. So you know what? We got 144,000 witnesses at the beginning of the tribulation. We'll talk about them in Matthew 24 in the next session. But then we have two witnesses that are in the last three and a half years of the tribulation that the world hates. And they're in competition with the false prophet and the antichrist. And these two witnesses have powers from God and these are lying signs and wonders and they're in competition with one another. And who are they going to believe? That's what we'll talk about in the next session. We are done. So we're going to close for a little break, and then we'll come back together. Father, I thank you for this time you've given to us, Lord. I pray 
that believers will have questions, that there is no stupid question at the end of the next session, Father. I pray that you will bless them and reveal truth to them and make it simple for them, Father. And I pray that I'm trying to do that. And I pray that with all my heart. Now bless this time of refreshment and just recouping, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? Yes. So good. You know, I, um, I hold the same view as my dad, not just because he's my dad, but I believe the Bible teaches it, that there's going to be a rapture, and we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Are you, are you expecting? Are you waiting for that? The Bible says that Jesus is our blessed hope. I will have to say this. You ended a minute early, and that you, that's money, Dad. I'm <laughs> telling you. I said, Dad, you got to keep it at an hour, right? Um, he could be long-winded like I could be long-winded. And so... Uh, uh, I probably wouldn't have held to the hour. I would have gone over. But anyways, um, hey, session two is going to start in like 15 minutes. We want to give everyone a break, stretch, walk around, talk to people, grab a drink, grab some dessert, hit the restroom, and then session two is coming up. Get ready. Here we go.